I'll let you in on a little secret. I probably stress way too much on the opening line of my sermons. I blame it on reading a lot of epic fantasy and sci-fi books growing up. The first line of any story really matters. And when I look for a new book, I would commonly read the first paragraph, and if it didn't grab me, I'd put it down and move on to the next book. The first line should grab you, should entice you, should invite you to read more. And well, if the first line of a servant doesn't grab you, then how am I going to know if you want to go check your own Facebook or Instagram and move on to something else? Because first lines matter. Jacob Marley was dead to begin with, deader than a doornail. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, a four-privet drive, were, very, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down or on to eat. No, it was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. And one of my favorite, uh, from one of my favorite series of all time, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. This rule of epic first lines was followed by the writer of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as the way it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending you, sending my messenger before you. He will, prepare your, he will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now, a bit of the brevity of this line is ruined on us because... Well, we know about Jesus. Well, at least I assume you have some knowledge of who Jesus is. <clears throat> but try to think about this with new ears and with new knowledge. This opening is setting the stage for a reader of a sweeping epic, a gospel, which those words are synonymous with good news about Jesus the Christ. See, we usually translate Christ as if it was Jesus' last name. No, his father was not Joseph Christ, nor his mother Mary Christ. Christ was a title. It meant Messiah or Savior. It was reserved for kings and emperors. In fact, the Roman emperors would commonly carry Christ as one of their titles. And this is why this opening matters. It starts off in opposition to current ruling systems. And next we read God's Son, which now brings in the divinity of Jesus and invokes a certain power over him. Not only is Jesus his king, but he's also son of the divine. He not only has the authority of the Christ, but he also has the power of God. Not only is he human, but now he's divine as well. And this matters because this claim is outlandish. If I were to come up to you now on the street and tell you that I am the son of God, you are more likely to ignore me or call me crazy than want to listen to hear about more. But imagine being hurt, starving, and poor. Imagine having nothing and everything taken from you. Imagine being oppressed under a Roman rule. Wouldn't you be looking for a way out? If you stumbled across something promising you good news, a different type of ruler, and someone who had the power of the universe available to him, wouldn't you want to read more? And next, to kind of solidify everything, is a prophecy, which goes to say that the story of Jesus is not coming out of nowhere. It is a story that is rooted in our history. It is rooted in the things that have come to pass. It is rooted in things that we think about in the present. And it's rooted in the things to come. 
This prophecy is used to point to a sign of legitimacy of the previous words of this opening. If all of this was true, if you believe the writings of Isaiah, then the writer of Mark challenged us to believe this too. And now if we continue on, we hear the story of John the Baptist, which is a familiar one. A crazy person living in the desert, dressed in animal skins, eating honey and locust. We all know people like that, right? Or is it just me who's gone to seminary? But really, John the Baptist is following the archetype of the prophet. He acts, talks, dresses, and eats, just like the other prophets that we find out through the Old Testament. And this offers a sense of legitimacy of the claims that John the Baptist is making. And what is that claim? He claims that even though he has the power to baptize people, the power of forgiveness of sins and cleansing them, there is someone who is coming with even greater power than that. And that is a pretty big claim. It is a claim that people have been waiting for. You have to remember that this gospel finds itself in the long history of a world and long history of Judaism itself, God's chosen people who are waiting for the one who had that greater power. They had their rituals and priests to tide them over. They had their rituals and priests to forgive their sins, to make them clean. But there was still one promised, one to come, who would grant them immense power, who would grant them the Spirit of God. And yet here, this man who is crazy, but acting like a prophet in the desert, is claiming that that person is near claiming that the one that we have been waiting for, the one that you and I have been waiting for, the one who this city, this country is waiting for, he was coming. He was near. We would finally have peace. And finding peace in a desert is definitely something that we all have been searching for. One of the things that I'll point out a lot in this series on Mark is that the author uses words to show uh, movement in a passage of time. The Gospel of Mark has often been said that it's a sprint to the cross or Jerusalem. The author uses a lot of words to show movement up until we get to Jerusalem, and then it seems we slow down and take our times. You know that old adage or saying, it's not about the destination, about the journey? Well, in this case, the journey is informing our destination. Everything that leads up to Jerusalem sheds light on the importance of what's happening in Jerusalem. The opening chapter is no different. Right here at the baptism of Jesus, we start with about that time, or better translation, at the right time, Jesus was baptized. This is the beginning of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and the author is inviting us to pay deep attention to what happens from here until we get to Jerusalem, because at the right time, our story has begun. Jesus' baptism is told a little bit different in the Gospel of Mark, and I want to slow it down and talk through that real quick. In this Gospel telling of Mark, the baptism is more about Jesus being solidified as the Son of God for the sake of the reader and not for the sake of those who are actually paying attention to John the Baptist, who are gathered at the banks of Jordan. If you pay attention to the words during the, this telling of the Gospel, this is more about Jesus being told that he is God's Son than it is about the onlookers finding this out. The Gospel of Mark says, you are my son, which is different than from the other Gospels where it says, this is my son. See the difference? You are my son, spoken directly to Jesus. First, this is my son, spoken to the onlookers. And even the Gospel of Mark are different about the dove falling from the sky. It says in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus saw the sky crack open, not the sky was cracked open. This is another important aspect of Mark that we'll come to talk through the rest of the series. 
there's something called the Marcan secret. Jesus' identity is always kept a secret from those around him. It's like the author of Mark wanted the gospel to have the actions speak louder than words or titles. Jesus keeps his identity secret because it's not about what he is it's more about what he is doing rather than what others claim him to be. We talk about this more next week, but it's an important thing to note at this point that it's about Jesus knowing that he is the son of God and not necessarily a public affirmation of Jesus' call. And then we have another action. Jesus led into the desert for 40 days. And that brings that could be a whole nother sermon, but I'll spare you that time and bring you up something more important, which is the number 40. We have to remember that the last time the Jews were cast into the wilderness, they had just fled Egypt and were following Moses. When Moses spent too much time about Mount Sinai, the Jews got restless and created a golden calf because they needed a God that they could see and that they had access to. They needed something real. And God's jealousy burned against them and they were to wander the desert for 40 years. Jesus being led into the desert for the 40 days is a microcosm of this experience. God, now incarnated here on earth, one that the people could touch and see what the people really desired, had to face the same temptations that his people faced. This serves as a kind of a historical callback, but what also it does is serves to fulfill the prophecies that something very special, rooted in history, is happening here. The divinity of Christ was reestablished at the baptism, and the humanity of Christ is reestablished by this time in the wilderness. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important to get this duality that we talk about so much about who Christ is. The divinity of Christ was established at the baptism where God says, you are my son. And the humanity of Christ is reestablished by his time in the wilderness. And Christ comes out of the wilderness with a full understanding of what his teaching is going to be, and he's ready to start his ministry. It's a simple but clear message. The kingdom of God is here, and this is good news. The kingdom of God is here, and this is good news. He says, change your heart, change your lives, because the kingdom requires change. And once again, this will become something of the central message that kind of started at the beginning. There is something different, something special present with Jesus. Something that will require of a change of the way things are. Something that requires us to pay close attention because well, when we desire, we should desire for the kingdom of God. When we desire, we should desire for the things like the valleys being raised up and the mountains being made low, the healing of the sick, sight recovery for the blind, the lame walking, that is the kingdom that we desire. And Christ is saying and proclaiming that it is here, now. All that is required is a change of heart, a reorientation, a claiming of what God's intention for us and who we are and what we are doing. And I think that that's a, the fulfillment we see in the next part of his story. Jesus, now understanding his calling, is calling others to come and follow him. Now, there's something great importance that's kind of missed today in our, con in our culture and understanding now because we are not walking at uh, the time that Jesus was walking the earth. How you found a profession during that time was significantly different than how you find professions now and today. You commonly just kind of did what your parents did because you grew up around the trade. 
So you were taught that trade. But if you're Jewish, you were also taught Torah. And a select few, those who could make the cut, would not actually go into their parents' trade, but would have the option to be called by a rabbi. And this was a highly held position. If you were called by a rabbi, you had brought honor to your family. And if you were called by a rabbi, you were called to live differently, a life of change. And now Jesus, who comes across as these tradespeople, which meant that they were not called by a rabbi, that they had failed their rabbinic orders, were just working a trade, and yet Jesus calls them, which it means significant things, that they were at that point failures. They did not believe they had the option to be anything but what they already were, and Jesus calls them. And that kind of resonates inside of us, right? We've all experienced that failure of calling when we fell in the garden, that sin that we have in our lives when we failed. And yet, there's still Christ calling to us. And yet, there's still Christ calling to us. We have been called to change from what we were and transform it, that reorientation into serving the kingdom of God. Even though we may feel like failures, Jesus still calls. And that's one of the more important things, and I want to dwell here for a bit. Jesus sees importance in what we are doing and what we've been called into. And what Jesus does not want us just to throw all of our life away, but rather he says, I want to reorient you into the kingdom of God, the original thing that you were created to be. Jesus did not see them as failures for not being able to carry out what their life experience had been. In fact, Jesus is saying, your whole life experience has been preparing you for this moment. Jesus wants to call us into what we've already been called to do. That means the gifts and graces, the life experiences, all of the up to this point has been there to teach us, to teach us in what God wants us to do in our lives. This is not a waste. You are not a waste. Whatever you have done, the accomplishments and failures is not a waste. What Jesus is calling, just like he was calling to these disciples, is that Look, I will take all of this and show you what you were truly created to do. That you were meant for something more than this. You were created and called into seeing the kingdom of God here on earth. And you have a part to play in that already. I have prepared you to take part in this journey. You have learned from life. And now use that learning, that knowledge to serve me in whatever capacity that may be. I want you to know that we all have been called. Not just me as a pastor, but we all have been called. We've all been given life experiences that will lead us to what God is calling us to be. But we must first be open to changing in our hearts and our lives, to reorient ourselves to the kingdom of God and to that larger narrative that is happening all around us. Church, we are stepping into a creation that God has called good. That the original orientation of our lives, that baseline that I believe is that rhythm that goes, that resonates throughout this universe, that goodness resonates inside of us. And though we may have fallen astray from that rhythm, Christ is calling us to reorient ourselves and come back. And it doesn't mean that we need to throw everything out 
but rather take the experiences that God has given us and reorient them to serving the kingdom, the gifts, the graces. We have been called to serve in the kingdom of God. And that narrative is not just Jesus, but Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God, humanity and divinity wrapped into being. We are called by the one who is part of breathing creation into being. We are called by the one who was, who is, and still is to come, to change our hearts and our lives, not to lose ourselves, but to find ourselves, who God breathed us into being. So now, let us breathe in and know that we are called. And now we have the great opportunity to respond. Amen.